0: It is a joy to be with you again. Uh, it has been, I think, about a year since the last time I was here. And we have had opportunities at church to pray for you many times since then. And so it is always a joy to come back and to see you and to see your faces again and to uh, enjoy some renewed fellowship. I was thinking about Tim. And since he's not here, I can talk about him just for a second. Um, I was just really encouraged lately by your pastor... Uh, Not by anything in particular that he did, but just as I considered his life and his ministry. So um, I'm not sure if he told you, but we were copying you guys and sharing a week of prayer with you. Um, So we weren't using the same resources as you, but we were praying at the same time as you along with you. Um, And one of the blessings to me was to be able to go along the resources that you had produced and to know where you guys were. I was just learning from... Uh, some of you guys, that that was actually you as a church putting that together. That's very encouraging. But I have seen, I am even in the midst of that, seeing uh, the labors, or the fruit rather, of of Tim's labor diligently for you. Uh, Your pastor is a man who every time I talk to him is laboring hard for you. Whether it's laboring in prayer, laboring in writing, laboring in study, um, he is a man who, in the Philippians 1 kind of sense, longs for your progress and joy in the faith. And whenever he speaks of you, does so with great love and affection. That is a real encouragement to me because um, Tim is one of those guys that the Lord has sovereignly put in my life where he's just a little bit ahead of me. I think sometimes the way he talks, it's like he thinks he's old or something, like he's way ahead. I kind of mean a little bit ahead running the race and, and he is a faithful beacon and a testimony um, in the midst of a world where... Um, from going all the way back to Bible college and to seminary, as you begin to run the race, you begin to see people along the way drop out this way, drop out that way, drop off along the way. And you need those, those steady pace setters ahead of you who just faithfully testify to the mercy and the faithfulness of God. And I'm, I'm thankful for the way that you're pastor has been strengthened by the grace of God to set the pace for myself and for many of us as well as an example to us so i am thankful for him and I'm- Thankful for the opportunity to be here to open up the word together with you tonight. We want to turn our attention to Mark chapter 5 again. Um, So please turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking, as um, was stated previously, beginning in verse 21. But just before we get into the actual text, as you turn there, just let me um, pray again and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I confess, I feel, uh, I feel something of my weakness, and I feel um, something of the weightiness of the task that lies before us. But I know that as heavy as those things are, even that I don't feel accurately. I confess that my heart rejoices at the truth that we see on this page in front of us. And yet at the same time, it doesn't rejoice like I know it should. I know, Father, that I need to hear this word as much as any soul in here. And yet it is easy to come not feeling like that is true. Father, I pray that you would, in your grace... Grant that we would look to Jesus. And as we look at him, we would behold your heart. That as we think about what you want from us, we would in fact see what you've already done for us. And we would rejoice in your grace and your mercy and your compassion and your kindness to us. Father, I pray that you would fill us with a sense, a genuine sense where our feelings line up with what is true so that we genuinely feel our neediness and helplessness. We don't deserve this grace. But because we come in Jesus' name, we pray boldly Open this text up. Grant that your spirit would apply it to every heart as necessary. That we would be strengthened and encouraged because we have come and beheld our God. Do it, Father, for your name's sake. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where... Something happens and it's not really what you expected to happen. And so you're not really sure how to respond. What do I do? How do I respond to that? What am I supposed to say? I remember there was a time a few years ago, uh, it was just before we planted the church, and I was in a situation where I was pastoring, but I wasn't the lead pastor, so I wasn't the one preaching every week. And there was another church nearby where they didn't have a pastor, and so they needed pretty uh, continual pulpit supply. So I was able to go several times in a row. Over the span of a couple months, I was there probably about three times, and I was able to go and to share the Word of God with them and have some good fellowship with the saints there. And the third time, so this was the third time in the span of about two months, and I finished, and I was talking with some people in the lobby afterwards, and um, a gentleman who was, I'll put it nicely, he was, he was not young, but he, he was not really old either, but he, he came in, up, up to me and wanted to talk to me, and one of the things he said was this, he said, uh, I think you've been here before, haven't you? And I said, yeah, i I have, and in my mind I'm thinking, yeah, three times in like the last eight weeks, but in any case, um, sure, okay, Um, in my heart I'm just dealing with that. And then he says, um, oh, well, you've gotten a lot better Okay, (laughs) so now my heart's dealing with that. How do I respond to that? (laughs) That's, uh, I think, and I believe he meant it as a compliment. He was trying to encourage me. He's saying, you're you're, you're working hard and developing your preaching gift, and that's that's good. You're getting better. Um, I couldn't help but contemplate for a moment, ponder, how am I supposed to respond to that? I wonder if something like that ever happens to you. In... Mark's gospel up to this point in chapter five, the figure of Jesus is one who continually puts people in situations kind of like that. Not because he says things that are borderline inconsiderate, but because he does things that no one sees coming. And so people are continually put in this spot where they just don't know what do I do with that? How do I respond? Take Mark chapter one, for example. Jesus is teaching and preaching. He's traveling around and a leper comes up to him. A leper who's unclean. He's not supposed to be in the presence of people. He comes up to Jesus and audaciously asks him, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus does what no one sees coming. And he reaches out, moved by compassion, touches the leper. Now that's wrong. In Old Testament law, it's supposed to be that if if a clean person touches an unclean person, the one who's clean becomes unclean. But here's Jesus touching this unclean person, and the unclean person is actually made clean. What in the world? What do you do with that? Mark chapter 2, the very next thing that happens, they bring a paralytic to him. They bring him on the bed and they lower him down through the roof. It's bold thing. They lay him down right in Jesus' lap. Now the people are kind of standing back watching this, thinking to themselves, well, this is something. We're going to see something one way or another. Either Jesus is going to get angry or there's going to be a miracle. If there's going to be a miracle, I know what it'll be. The, The man who is lame, who cannot walk, will be told to get up and walk. But that's not what Jesus says. He says your sins are forgiven. Heads turn. Kind of cocked to the side. What? What are you just Why is he Why is he speaking like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? People are caught off guard. They don't know how to respond. Jesus goes on in Mark chapter 3. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And then he calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. He's healing people on the Sabbath. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with him? In Mark chapter 4, he's traveling across the sea with his disciples, across the Sea of Galilee, and they're in the boat, and the crazy storm comes. And these trained fishermen who've made their living on this very sea are scared to death because they've never been in the middle of a storm like this and they begin to panic and they go to wake Jesus up because he's just napping in the back. I mean, what do you do with that, first of all? But second of all, you go to him, they wake him up, they bring him and, and he comes to the front of the boat and he rebukes the wind and the sea and they obey him. What do you do with a guy who tells nature what to do? The whole natural world obeys him. And then next, it's not just the natural world, it's a supernatural world. Jesus arrives on the shore, the region of the Gadarenes, and he goes ashore and there's this crazy demoniac with all this power. He's, he's indwelt by um, thousands of demons, a legion of demons, and everyone is marveling at the power of these demons for some time. Because he's crazy. He, he, he breaks the chains and the things they tied him up with. He rips off his clothes, he runs around naked, he cuts himself with rocks, he cries out, he lives in tombs. It's a marvel. It's a spectacle. With a word, Jesus sends the legion of his enemies marching. So that those who had seen the demoniac and formerly marveled at that power, now they come, they see the man clothed and in his right mind, talking with Jesus. And they think to themselves, we don't know what to do with that. So they send him away. The question really through all these things comes down to what the disciples ask in chapter 40 or chapter 4 rather and verse 41 where after he calms the sea, it says they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? What are we supposed to do with him? Who is this guy? How should we respond to this kind of power? They responded with fear. The people in the region of the Gadarenes did the same thing. They responded with fear. They sent Jesus away. That's a legitimate, in one sense, response. Here is power like you have never witnessed in your life. And it's standing right here in front of you. It's easy to understand why they'd be afraid. But the question is, is that really the response that Jesus wants? Is that what he's looking for from people? He wants fear? In this passage that we're going to look at, we get to see the response that Jesus is actually seeking. You know what I love? In the midst of this culture, in this day, thousands of years ago, you know who it is who leads the way? It's a woman who shows us exactly what Jesus is looking for. So what we're going to do, really, just brief, or, or what we're going to do this morning, is just, or this afternoon, sorry, is uh, under sort of two headings. The first one is way longer. It's just a tale of two daughters. We're just going to basically walk through the story and kind of tease out the point, ask what's the point of the narrative that's given before us today, and then we're going to just ask a couple follow-up questions and reflections on that at the end. But first, this, this tale of two daughters, and it begins in verse 21. This is, what the text says. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this or not. But when I read the narratives, the biblical narratives. I often try to imagine what it would be like to be one of the disciples. Like what would be going on in their mind at this point. They they had just come across and they'd experienced this crazy storm like never before, right? And they're they're fearful for their lives and they're so afraid of the storm. But then the text says, after Jesus calmed the storm, the way the fear is described, they were even more afraid of what Jesus did and who Jesus is than they were of the storm. This was terrifying for them. Now they come aboard the land and and there's this crazy stuff going on with the demoniac. But hey, at least I got solid ground beneath my feet, right? (laughs) Right? And now Jesus, in the midst of all this unexpected stuff, says, okay, get back in the boat. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, oh boy, what's coming next? Anyway, thankfully for them, it's an uneventful trip. They actually make it over to the other side. A great crowd gathers about him and he was beside the sea. This is Jesus' usual MO, right? This is the way he operates. So Jesus or Mark keeps stressing for us that the crowds are pressing in all around him everywhere he goes so that he can't enter into the towns, he can't go into the houses, he can't have anything to eat. So one of the ways he would deal with this when he's trying to teach is he'd go beside the sea because essentially what it does is it makes like a back wall for him because not that many people are willing to start like going out into the sea to get in close to him to hear him teach. So when he goes here, it sort of stops the people from crowding around him. It gives him kind of a natural environment like this where he can teach. So Jesus is teaching to the crowds. And then in verse 22 came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, fell, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. He comes through the crowd. Great crowd. So you've got to be at the sea. But here comes Jairus. Now, some of you are young. I don't know if you're crazy enough to ever go to a rock concert, um, but I've seen pictures of rock concerts. Okay, I've been at some when I was younger too. Um, but I don't, one thing I don't get is those, even when I was young, I never did this. You know those people that go right up to the front? Isn't that crazy? You see those pictures? They go right up to the front. And there's the bar, like those bars and stuff, the gates right at the front. They get pressed right up again. And there's people all around. Wait, people, so many people crowding in around. I don't know why you want to be there. But one of the questions I always have when I look at that, they look like they're having fun, is how did they get there? So you've got all these people who were there at the concert, and they're all having a good time. and, And most of them would like to be closer if they could. But how did those ones get to the front? I don't know if they just have like pointier elbows than everyone else or something. They figure out a way. Maybe they crowd surf, something. Somehow they got to the front. The idea is they got there because they wanted to. Whether it meant they got there earlier, they fought their way through. Somehow they got there because they wanted it the most. In the midst of the crowd, here's one who comes from the back and fights his way through to get to the front. And it's a synagogue ruler. Essentially, he's kind of like the guy who leads the services at your local church. He's a a bit of a local bigwig, but he comes and falls at Jesus' feet and implores him earnestly. Now, I I love this little note that Mark includes for us when he says, Jairus by name, because you remember that um, Mark is recording the eyewitness account that was given to him by Peter. Peter also being from the region of Galilee where this story takes place. Peter's kind of throwing a shout out to his hometown people here where he's saying, hey, guys, guess who this was? Like if I'm telling you a story of all this crazy stuff that happened, and then I'm like, and guess who it was? It was Tim Kerr. <laughs> See, it's like, it's, it's just pulling in someone that you know. So it's adding color to the story. It's also his way of kind of like adding a footnote. So he says, look, if you don't know the details, you don't believe the details, go talk to Jairus. He'll testify to what is here. So, anyway, Jairus comes down and he falls down at his feet and he implores him earnestly. What has made him so desperate that as a religious leader he would fall down at Jesus' feet and implore him this way? Well, if you're a parent, you know exactly what would make you this desperate. My little daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death. Literally, it could be translated, uh, she's having her last. She's on her last gasps. It's desperate. There's nothing else that can be done. You have to come. Please come. Lay your hands on her that she'll be made well and live. He is desperate. And as he goes, the text says, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. It's getting even crazier than it was before. See a lot of the people are there because they want to hear Jesus teach. They actually want to hear what he's all about, what he's teaching. But there's a a significant portion of the people who are following Jesus. You know, you've heard of storm chasers? These people are kind of like miracle chasers. They're just here for the show. They're treating Jesus kind of like a circus sideshow. So they're following along. Now here's a great opportunity to get really hyped up because Jairus, this local celebrity, comes and Jesus is going to go save his little girl. So here we go. So the crowds are even more excited than they were before and they're following along with him but if you're trying to travel with a crowd how fast do you think you're going you ever been late for church you're trying to get there late for work trying to get there what always happens when you're late and you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry red light <laughs> red light red, oh that's frustrating why does that always happen it's kind of the picture you have here daughter's dying and the crowds are pressing in pressing in, pressing in, slowing him down. Something happens as he goes, verse 25. And there was a woman. Now the descriptive language here is is very interesting. What Mark does is something very unique. It's unique in the Gospels, it's unique in Mark. It's, It's not like his typical style, but what he does is he piles up you want me to get technical? Here you go. Seven participial phrases. Basically, what he does is he describes the woman seven with seven different descriptive phrases before he says what she does. Why would someone do that? It's because he wants you to understand who she is and exactly what she has suffered. He wants you to have a clear picture of who this woman is before you even get to the issue of what she does. So I'm going to read a bit of a a literal kind of awkward translation of, of really how Mark does this to try to get across these phrases one after another after another, piled on top of each other. Verse 25, there was a woman who having had a discharge of blood for 12 years that's first the first descriptor right so she's having had a discharge of blood for 12 years and having suffered much under many physicians and having spent all that she had and having not gotten better but having gotten worse now Having heard the reports about Jesus and now coming up behind him. Is so that significant, right? Why does someone approach from behind? Why do you sneak up from behind? Because you don't want to be seen. She's embarrassed. She's ashamed. She's unclean. She's not really welcomed in a crowd. She definitely shouldn't be touching someone. She sneaks up from behind. It's not just descriptive language, it's emphatic language. She has suffered much from many physicians so that all of her money was gone. Mark wants you to feel her pain, to feel what this would actually be like. I mean, you can just imagine if you're a woman and you get your cycle and maybe it's a little early one month. Oh, that's, that's uncomfortable rats. Why did that have to happen? But then it's particularly heavy. Oh, that's that's rotten. And then it's particularly long, five, six, seven, eight days, and it's not showing any sign of slowing down. You're really starting to get concerned at this point. What is actually happening? A week turns into two, turns into a month. And maybe there's this v- sort of faint glimmer of hope in your mind that you think, well, maybe... Maybe it was just like some weird month. Something got tripped up that month and when we complete the month then it'll kind of like hit the reset button like rebooting your computer and everything will get back to the way it's supposed to operate. But the second month rolls by. You start to do some research, talk to some people. Who are the most reputable doctors? Who are the best doctors? You you try to seek them out. You try to find them. Cost is no object at this point because you've got money and the issue needs to get solved. So you go to the reputable doctors, the good doctors, and you try, but it just doesn't work. One doctor after another after another. Each of them practicing their own brand of medicine. Who knows what kind of medical treatment you're getting at this day and age. Now, the fact that it doesn't work doesn't stop any of them from taking your money. So as you're crossing option after option after option off your list, you're watching your bank account drop and drop and drop and drop so that pretty soon all that you have is gone. Every doctor is crossed off the list. Year after year after year, you continue to bleed. In a day when there is no such thing as modern hygienic products, how dirty, how unclean she must have felt. In fact, the law describes her that way. She is unclean, which means something. That means going to church on Sunday, forget about it. She is not welcome in her local synagogue. It also means this, that anyone that touches her becomes unclean. Can you imagine what that would do to your psyche to have this knowledge that if anyone actually touches me, they become unclean? What would this be like year after year after year? Twelve years of either no or limited physical contact with other humans? What would that do to someone? Everywhere she goes, people know. They look sideways and they whisper. What has she done? There is no earthly hope for her. But she's heard the reports about Jesus. So she sneaks up behind and she dares to touch his garment. She says, I just, if I just touch his garments, I'll be made well. <clears throat> she touches him. And they both feel it. At once, she feels the flow of blood dry up. What, what would that feel like? I, I, have you ever been sick so long you forget what it's like to feel healthy? <laughs> or, or you ever have like a chronic pain that's just with you and with you and with you and you almost forget what it was like before you had the pain? I remember one time, it's a ridiculous example, I apologize in advance for it. One time I had this sinus thing. My sinuses were clogged, like painful, for like a year. And I, I couldn't figure out what to do. And one day I got so fra- I won't tell you what I did. But in any case, I managed to fix it. And all of a sudden it was like pop, pop, pop. And my ears are popping and my nose. And then all of a sudden it's like everything was clear. And I could, I could breathe again. And it was awesome. It was just this amazing experience of, I'm well. And this woman who has bled for 12 years, I don't know what it felt like. But somehow she touches and she feels it immediately dried up. It stopped. It worked. She feels it. The text says Jesus feels it too. He feels the power go out from him in verse 30. So immediately he turns around to the crowd and says, who who touched my garments? Verse 31, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you? Are you kidding me? Look at the people Everybody's touching you. Yet you say, who touched me? I kind of saw this played out this week. Friday, I was on a, field trip. I was a chaperone. Of my uh, eldest daughter, she's in grade one. I was a chaperone. I had to pretend like I was an adult or something, and go and, and watch these children on this field trip. And while we're there, we're at this farm, and they had this uh, great little exhibit where they had all these baby chicks under, you know, the warming light. And so they're all there. And, and now what happens when you take a class of grade ones and say, hey, look at the baby chicks? It's like, boom, this flo- they, they flock, right? So they're all crowding in around the window. Everyone's trying to see, and this one girl in the middle turns around. and She's like, stop touching me, <laughs> That's not going to happen. You're in a crowd of grade ones trying to see some baby animals. What do you mean stop touching me? Je- Jesus says, who, who touched me? And his disciples are like, that's, that's crazy. Who touched you? I kind of feel, feel some sympathy for the disciples. It's easy to condemn them. But I am also a dad who often has tried to get kids and family out the door. Any of you dads ever have this experience? You're, you're trying to get everyone out the door, right? You're going somewhere, you're running like borderline late. And, and then this kid like for, for, forgot, forgot shoes or something. And this kid needs a hairbrush. And now this kid has to go pee. And it's like, oh, come on, just everybody, let's go. We're trying to get somewhere, And the disciples are looking at this going, look, Jairus is significant. He's a synagogue ruler and and his daughter is actually sick. And here's a chance for Jesus. It'd be good for us to get in good with some of these guys like Jairus. It's good if we're not late for this one, Jesus. Why are you stopping? But he's insistent. Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. He's, He's not going anywhere. He's intent on speaking with her. When she perceives, he's not leaving. And the text says, she came forward in fear and trembling and fell down before him. She's scared. You know what? She probably should be. She came and touched him. She tapped into the power of the infinite, almighty God in a way that she was not invited to. She should not be out in public. She should not be in a crowd where most certainly other people are touching her. She should definitely not be daring to touch a holy man, a rabbi, a teacher of the law. Jesus after all is a religious man and she knows what the religious men in her life have treated her like so what's this one with all power going to do with her this is not the point of the text but as a guy who has 3 daughters and a wife <laughs> i'm constantly having to learn and be challenged in how to relate to women guys If you've got women in your life, we need to learn from Jesus how to relate to our women. Look at what he does. Don't read this text too fast. The woman comes in fear and trembling and falls down before him and told him the whole truth. Doesn't say she started to talk and he was busy, so he cut her off. doesn't say he had to check his email in the middle could literally be translated she told him her life story you ever wonder when you read this How Mark piles up all these descriptive phrases where in the world did he get all the details of everything that had happened to her why did he feel so much sympathy to her it's because she told the whole story right there in front of everybody and Jesus stopped and listened and you know what I am not more busy than Jesus and neither are you. And if Jesus takes the time to disengage from what he's doing to engage with the woman in front of him, then we need to do the same. And then having heard her, actually listened to her, do you know what he's able to do? He's able to communicate to her words of affirmation and comfort and love in the face of her doubts and fears. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, do you have any idea how comforting that word would be? This outcast, not welcome in the synagogue, not welcomed by her family, not welcomed anymore by doctors because she doesn't have any money, no human touch for 12 years. Here's this, Man with the power of God who looks at her with compassion and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Don't think that this is going to be taken from you. Don't think that this is temporary. Don't think that you've stolen something that I didn't want to give. What I have given to you, the healing that you have experienced, it is yours for good. Your faith has saved you. It has made you well. So take my peace and go. Jairus was desperate for his daughter. Jesus has all the time in the world for his. While Jesus is talking to her, verse 35, while he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So the news comes, Jairus, your daughter, is dead. Jesus overhears. And if you're using the ESV, there's a little footnote there, and it says, or ignoring. So he either overheard or he ignored. It's kind of the same thing like oversight. You know, if you have oversight over a project, you're supposed to make sure you know all the little details. But if you commit an oversight, it's, you forgot the little details. So it's, it's that same kind of thing here with, with overhearing, where Jesus overhears something that wasn't actually spoken to him, but he ignores it anyway. He hears it, and he's like, okay, Jairus, just don't even pay any attention to that. Just, just just, have faith. Just believe. Don't fear. Only believe. And so they go. They go to the house. He takes with him just Peter and James and John. And they come to the house. And there is a great commotion in verse 38. People weeping and wailing loudly. So uh, common custom in that day was dictated. Uh, even the poorest of Jewish families, one writer says, uh, should have at the very least two flute players and one wailing woman. Hmm. So th- this, is, this is the way this culture mourns. So what you do is you show everyone else how sorrowful you are by paying someone else to grieve for you. And the more sorry you actually are, the more you pay other people to make a big commotion. Now, if a, the poorest of Jewish families has two flute players and a wailing woman, what about a synagogue ruler whose 12-year-old daughter has just died tragically? This is a commotion. People weeping and wailing. And Jesus gets there in the midst of all the commotion. And he says, hey, why are you guys so upset? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they go from, oh, (laughs) what is wrong with you? How do they do that? Do you see what the text says? And they laughed at him. They were just wailing. Now they're laughing. How do they do that? Well, they do that because they're professionals, right? So they're not actually feeling it. They're just, they're just wailing along with it. But here's the thing about having professionals there is they're professionals. Now, I used to work at a funeral home and um, I know that people do not call the funeral home unless they're sure, Right? <laughs> Um, And when you work at a funeral home, you see a lot of dead people. And so you know what a dead person looks like. So here are these death professionals who know about death and know that they don't get called unless death has actually occurred. What Mark is doing by including this, I think, is saying, look, they knew for a fact that this, this girl, she was actually dead. This isn't some pseudo miracle where Jesus just tricked everyone and she was actually just sleeping. She was dead. And they knew it. These are the professionals. But he put them all outside. Verse 40. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And I love this. He heals her the same way he healed the woman. The unclean woman with a touch so that he made her clean. Now he touches an unclean corpse again with a touch and brings her to life. These words, little girl, little girl, get up. Sometimes in our house, our kids actually sleep later than us on Christmas morning. And so it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you want to get them up and you're trying to be nice, but you're like, get up, get up. Come on, get up. It's not a special incantation. It's not some magic formula. There's no abracadabra here. It's everyday plain language. Now there's an account in the Old Testament of one of the great prophets of God who uh, brought a boy back to life. He resurrected the boy and and he invoked the name of God. And it's this big, huge, drawn-out scene where there's this ritual and he lays on the boy and he stretches out his arms and he breathes in his mouth. He invokes the name of God and, and there's this big, huge thing and then the boy is raised to life. Jesus kind of just walks over. He does not break a sweat. He doesn't even need to invoke the name of God because the authority is all his. He just says, hey, get up. With the word, he flexes his muscles and shows everyone he has power over death. (laughs) And in what seems like a remarkable understatement, Says they were overcome with amazement. The text is interested in showing us this is legit. She was really dead. She's really alive. She gets up, she starts walking. It's what 12 year olds do. Jesus says, Give her something to eat. That's what 12 year olds do too. So he's saying, Look, she is really well. She is healed. It's done. And they are overcome. With amazement. And then I love this. Look at what it says in verse 43. Who can get away with this? I don't know. Look at what Jesus does. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. (laughs) Really? We hired whalers. There's a whole crowd of people that followed us. There's all the people who brought the report that she was dead in the first place. There's all the other disciples outside who weren't able to come in with Jesus. What about the extended family who've probably already been notified so that they can come for the funeral? What do you mean don't tell anyone? You know what Jesus is doing? He's saying something like this. You simply don't have categories for understanding what it means that I have power of life over death. But there will come a day when I myself have suffered and died and been raised, and the Spirit comes and explains all of these things to you. And then you'll understand. But for right now, all I'm doing is I'm just tipping my cards. I have not played my hand. You just wait. You just wait. Because it's coming. You may have noticed that this story is told in kind of like a, a sandwich form. Scholars, in their very technical language, call it a Markan sandwich, Mark Sandwich. So it's, it's kind of like um, the first story is like the first piece of bread and the second piece of bread. And then in the middle, you get whatever you like on your sandwich. So if it's peanut butter and jam. Now, here's the thing. Uh, a sandwich is always defined by what's in the middle, right? You never have a bread sandwich because that doesn't define anything. It's defined by what's in the middle. So if you have a peanut butter and jam, it's a peanut butter and jam sandwich. And the same thing when you're interpreting these Stories that the one in the middle is what gives definition to the whole gives clarity to the whole and so the story that's in the middle if we want to find out what's the point of all of this of this narrative we look to what's in the middle in the climax in verse 34 here it is it's when jesus looks to her after she shares her story and all that's happened and jesus says daughter your faith has made you well And then, as we transition back to the other story and Jairus hears that his daughter is dead, do you remember what Jesus said? Do not fear. Only, in the original, is the same word, only faith. Only believe. Jesus is saying the response that I'm looking for from you is one of faith. Not a fear that paralyzes like the disciples or the Gadarenes, but a faith that mobilizes. If faith is the point of these stories, if faith is what Jesus is looking for, then I think it would serve us well, as we sort of round this out, to just think for a second. A couple questions about what this story actually teaches us about faith. How is it that we are supposed to respond? First question is this. What is faith? What is faith? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not theological correctness, right? It's not being able to write a seminary-level textbook of theology. If this woman who sneaks up behind Jesus and thinks she can steal a miracle by touching his clothes were to write a systematic theology, it would probably be a little bit of a mess. But she does have faith. So faith has to be something bigger, something greater than just theological correctness or cultural propriety or even religious performance. Faith, rather, I think, as it's played out in this narrative, is something like this. It's a right perception of Jesus combined with a right perception of self that compels me to action. It's a right understanding of Jesus and a right understanding of me that makes me get up and go to him. So what we see in the story is a right perception of Jesus from both the woman and from Jairus. They both fall down before him. They both fight through the crowds to get to him. They both know that he is the one who is able to do the impossible. He is the one with the sovereign will to do whatever he sees fit. And so all they want to do is get to him and cast themselves on him so that whatever he wills will be done because he's got the power to fix It's a right perception of Jesus. But here's the thing. A right perception of him as the one with all power doesn't really help us at all if we don't see ourselves as being in need of power, which is why we need a right perception of self. Both the woman and Jairus, we see clearly, are at the end of their rope. They are completely incapable of fixing their problems. There's no earthly hope. There's no doctor, there's no money, there's nothing that could fix this problem that's in front of me right now. I am helpless. They got a right perception of Jesus, they got a right perception of self as helpless, but is that faith? Let me ask you a question. Do you think out of all the people in that great crowd, all the people pressing around, that these are the only two characters who had right perception of Jesus and right perception of self? probably not. So what is it that sets them apart? It's that these perceptions are brought home to bear on their hearts so much that it compels them to action so that they go to Jesus. They were so convinced of Jesus' power and my powerlessness that they had to get up and go. They pressed through the crowd They did what it took to get to Jesus. So if that's what faith is, let me ask you. Do you have it? Do you have faith? Do you have a right perception of yourself as absolutely helpless and powerless Before a holy and just God. Before a God who knows every intention and every motive of the thoughts of your heart. Before a God who's witnessed every one of your compromises and shortcomings and failures. Have you realized that you cannot even control yourself? Or your own sin? How many times have you set rules for yourself? You set boundaries for yourself. You set regulations for yourself. You make commitments to yourself. You make resolutions for yourself. And time and time again, you break the very things that you set out for yourself as your own rules. Never mind the rules and the laws of God. And even even if by some miracle you were able to somehow figure out a way to get such powerful self-control that you could turn your life around and now live exactly the way you want to live from here on out, your life's probably like mine, where I look back even at the things that I've done in my past and I know that they're real and I know that I can't undo them. And I know that I can't erase the record of all the wrong. And the memories still haunt me. Have you perceived yourself as helpless to fix yourself? Have you perceived Jesus as the one who is full of power? The one who can fix all that's impossible to fix? The one who came to take the debt that was impossible for you to pay by dying on a cross, bearing your sins, suffering in your place and being buried in the ground. So that on the third day when he rose again, he could give us the gift of life and peace with God for all who come to him by faith. This whole problem that I can't fix of the record of my guilt Jesus took. And he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Rising again on the third day to show that by his power, the debt is paid. Do you believe that he has power to do that? Have you gone to him and asked him to do the impossible, to fix your broken heart and your broken life, to erase the record of guilt that you've earned for yourself, and to change your heart so that now you are healed and able to go forward with his peace and with his blessing? Have you gone to him? faith the faith the response that he's looking for is understanding who he is and understanding who i am so that i go to him and cast myself on him for his mercy that's what faith is what does faith actually accomplish this second question what does faith actually do what happens when people have faith It, it brings the unclean to Christ, so that the unclean are made clean. It takes those who are dead and it gives them life. It reconciles us to God. It establishes our standing with God. Okay, there's, there's lots of similarities between these two stories that are bound up together. Both of them involve the word daughter. Both of them um, involve the number of 12 years. Both of them, there's unclean people healed by the touch of Jesus. But there's all kinds of stuff that's different in the two stories too. Jairus is named because he's important. The woman isn't. Jairus is a man, which in that culture made him important. The woman isn't. Jairus is a man of standing. The woman is an outcast. Jairus approaches from the front. The woman sneaks up from behind. Jairus is free to ask Jesus to come to his house. She doesn't even want Jesus to see her. Jairus is an official in the synagogue. She is not welcome in the synagogue. But do you know what faith does? It becomes the great equalizer. Does Jesus have time for the synagogue ruler's daughter? Oh, you bet. But he's also got all the time in the world for the unclean outcast woman, the downtrodden, the broken, the people who think, even if I could go to Jesus, all I could even bring myself to bear to do is sneak up from behind. Jesus welcomes and treasures. As any king, he determines who comes to him and how they come to him and the welcome they receive. And he welcomes all who come by faith. Listen, it does not matter who you are in the world, what gender you are, what socioeconomic status you are, what race you are, how much of a sinner you think you are. It does not matter. Because all who come by faith come on equal footing before Jesus. Lastly, why does Jesus want this? This is the response that Jesus is looking for. He's looking for faith. Why does he want faith? Why does he go out of his way to seek it? Because these people come, both of them come with a measure of faith. But Jesus actually, from both of them, seeks more than they came with. He doesn't just respond to them. So the woman thinks, I'll sneak up from behind. And Jesus says, here's a stage. Take the platform. Jairus comes with faith for Jesus to raise a sick daughter. He says, no, no, I want you to have faith to raise a dead daughter. In both of them, Jesus is actively seeking faith. Why? I think it's because it's what glorifies him the most. That's one reason. It creates the greatest stage to make clear to everyone this is not about the person, but about the God who is at work through their faith. So that all stand back and marvel at the power of God. It's for his glory, for the display of his power and his blessing. Here's another reason why Jesus seeks it. It's not just for his glory. It's also for their good. Have you considered this? Think about it. The woman thinks what's best for her is for her to simply come up and touch his cloak from behind. But Jesus says, look, you could go away and you could start to doubt and you could lose your assurance. I don't want that. I want what's best for you. I want you To look me in the eye and tell me what happened so that I can speak to you and tell you of my compassion and my grace, my power, my blessing that will not leave you or forsake you. He wants her to go in that assurance. He wants her to come by faith because it's what's good for her. So that she can have peace and certainty and rest and happiness. He also seeks faith. Faith. Here's the third reason. Not just for his glory, not just for your good, but for the good of the people who are sitting around you this afternoon. I haven't been a pastor that long, but I do talk to a lot of people, a lot of Christians, and I have not met A single Christian who has been a Christian in a church for any length of time who cannot testify to you of the powerful impact that it is on them for the bolstering of their own faith when they have watched others enduring trials but exercising faith. When I see their faith, I'm so encouraged. I'm so strengthened. I'm humbled. I'm built up. I'm edified by it. That's exactly what's happening in this story. Jesus draws out this woman so that he can turn around and say to Jairus, Jairus, see what she did? That's what I'm looking for from you. So that we can read this story thousands of years later and hear his voice today. See what I did? She came by faith. Do you see what I did? Now guess what I'm looking for from you? Do you know that Jesus is still seeking that kind of faith from you right now in the midst of your trials, whatever situation you are enduring right now for the sake of his glory, the revealing of his power, for the sake of your good and the good of your brothers and sisters around you this afternoon? What he's looking for from you is faith. How are you supposed to respond? What do you do? What do you do with Jesus, this guy with all power? How do you respond to the one who has the authority of God, power over life and death, the authority to forgive sins? He wants those who simply perceive themselves as helpless, to flee to him as the one who has all power, and in him to find healing and hope, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. He will do it if we come by faith. So let's pray. Father, we can confess that this is what we need. We can agree with the text that this is what we need. We can say with our lips that, yeah, we need faith. But, Father, just as we've rightly evaluated ourselves, we recognize that even still now, we are powerless to stir up in ourselves the type of faith That we need, the the response that you're looking for, we can't drum it up. We need your grace. So, Father, I pray for every soul here. Grant that we would see ourselves and our desperate need more clearly than ever. Grant that we would see the sufficiency of our Savior more clearly than ever. And Father, please, grant that every soul here would fight through the crowd, the doubts, the distractions, and get to Jesus. Because we pray in his name. Amen.